Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we spend the hour with labor historian John Logan to assess the historic unionization drive against Amazon at their new Bessemer, Alabama warehouse and the outcome, a no vote for the retail workers union. Frontline workers took on the second largest company in the United States, a notoriously anti-union company with unlimited resources during a pandemic and won widespread sympathy and media coverage, but failed to win enough votes to get union recognition. With so much riding on this struggle, we'll ask John what was achieved and what the defeat means for organizing in the United States, where labor law is stacked in favor of the employers. We'll get his perspective on the larger significance of this drive, as well as the nitty-gritty of the obstacles faced every step of the way. All this when our program returns in just a moment. Of the goons and the gates and the company thinks and the deputy sheriff that made the raid to the union hall when a meeting yet was called. When the Legion boys come around, she always stood her ground. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have John Logan back with us today. He's a labor historian and we're going to talk about the defeat of the historic unionization drive at the new Amazon plant in Bessemer, Alabama, which we've been covering literally nonstop since January. The NLRB completed the vote count on Friday after several weeks of deciding which ballots were to be challenged. In the end, they voided 76 ballots and challenged another 505. These numbers, you know, just let them percolate. 738 votes were cast for joining the RWDSU, we'll call it RW from now on, and 1,798 voted against joining the union. The number of eligible voters, otherwise known as the size of the proposed bargaining unit, was 5,876, and there were 3,041 valid votes counted. These are all important numbers that we'll get back to, and plus that challenged ballots. The unionization drive garnered widespread sympathy and media coverage, and here were frontline workers taking on the second largest company in the United States, a notoriously anti-union company at that, with unlimited resources. And we're going to ask John to go through the timeline of this organizing campaign, the obstacles they faced, how he assesses the defeat, now being discussed absolutely everywhere. I know John is busy. He's being interviewed night and day worldwide. And ultimately, I think we probably will get to the question of, was this a fight that could be won? and what are the costs of defeat. So we have a lot to talk about, and I'm very pleased, John, that you're back with us. Let me just tell the listeners that you are a labor historian at UC Davis and an expert on the anti-union industry and anti-union legislation in the United States, exploring how public policy and employer opposition have made it more difficult 
for workers to form unions in the United States than is the case in other developed democracies. And John is also professor and chair of labor and employment studies department at San Francisco State University, and he spent 10 years teaching at the LSE in London and was research director at the UC Berkeley Labor Center. And before we just get into all of that, John, I just wanted to say in our last discussion, which was January 28th of this year, we talked about the historic nature of this battle and saying that it was a template for labor in this difficult period, organizing in a pandemic against a notoriously anti-union company. And we also said that taking on Amazon is akin to what it was to take on General Motors with the same implication in the 1930s for capital labor relations in contemporary capitalism. And employees in Bessemer, Alabama, had they won, would have been the first unionized Amazon warehouse in the nation. We're going to go into more on that. But just to say also that what makes it even more poignant, I guess, and important is that this was during a pandemic, which increased the demand for the kind of work that Amazon workers do. And Amazon during this period has seen record profits. Jeff Bezos has seen his wealth increase exponentially, I don't even want to guess, but you might know, since the pandemic forced lockdowns made online sales soar and deliveries as well. Okay, with all of that, let's just start, if we could, with the timeline. So what happened and how? And just start like March 29th when the plant opened. Yeah. So, I mean, our understanding of this from sort of piecing it together from the accounts that have been written and speaking to the participants is actually quite soon after the facility opened, some of the workers contacted the RW. Now, the RW has a history of representing black workers in the American South. It represents workers in the poultry processing plants in Alabama, Pilgrim's Progress at other locations. So it's well known in that area. So a few of the workers reached out to the RW and said, we work here, conditions are very arduous within the plants, there's a very high turnover, we don't feel that we're being treated with respect, we want to talk to the union. So they had conversations over the summer, the RW started to bring some local organisers to the plant and to have discussions with the workers, initially primarily as they were entering and leaving the plant, And they found that there was a great deal of interest, you know, significantly more than they had anticipated. So they started to get people to sign union authorization cards. And they found out that the card signing campaign just really took off like wildfire. Again, within a relatively short period of time in the fall, they had collected a lot more cards than they had anticipated. Now, One of the interesting things that a lot of people know who have been following this, that, as you said, the eligible bargaining unit was almost 6,000 workers, 5,876 or whatever you said the number was. The RWDSU initially filed for a much smaller bargaining unit, 1,500. Some people have taken this as an indication that they didn't actually know how big a workplace it was. That's actually not true. At the time, all of the public documents did say 1,500 workers, but they knew there was a minimum of 2,200, 2,300 workers in there, which at the time, that was an accurate number. 
But they said, well, official documents say 1,500, so let's file for a bargaining unit of 1,500. But they knew that Amazon was going to try and pack the unit, which is exactly what it did do. They also knew, secondly, that Amazon was going to hire more workers. Now, I will say that no one, including the RW, expected Amazon to hire as many workers yeah. as it did within as short a period as it did. And you know, I was on the NLRB hearing the Zoom call in December, and Harry Johnston, Amazon's lead attorney, Morgan Lewis, who's a former NLRB member, called it at the time the biggest hiring spree in the shortest period of time in history. And it really was. It was amazing. So the numbers of workers within the warehouse shot up. But in the meantime, in December, the RW was still collecting 5,800 cards a day. So it was faced with a decision. We're still collecting a huge number of cards here. We're going to have enough cards to file, even with this much larger bargaining unit. Should we go ahead or should we put a halt to the campaign? All right, let's leave it there. I want to ask a few more questions about that. Because you talked about the workers that initially started working there. And we're talking about a very new plant. And and the timeline, literally, March 29th to to where we are today, is a very short time to have a huge new plant and have people interested to go through all of this process that you've mentioned. But also, my understanding, and maybe you can tell me if you know is that the workers who first approached RW were older African-American workers who had worked in auto part plants in the region and had been unionized. So their ears were up when they saw the conditions and they went, yeah, hold on, let's do this here. And so that's correct? Yeah, that's correct. And as you say, most of the workers are African-American. Most of the workers are women. But again, as a lot of people probably know, Alabama does have an industrial heritage and it has a union heritage. And so there are people in Bessemer, people in Birmingham, people in Tuscaloosa that have worked in unionized industrial jobs, you know, before they went to Amazon. And then there are younger people who have never worked in a unionized workplace. So there are these divisions within the workplace. But as you said, there is that tradition of people who don't necessarily think, well, 15 bucks an hour is the greatest wage I've ever had because, you know, they've worked for like 25, 30 bucks an hour with great benefits in unionized positions. And we can talk about this later, but Amazon, of course, made a huge deal about the $15 an hour minimum wage. But the truth is, even for that area, it's not a great wage. It's lower than the median wage for the Birmingham metropolitan area. And it's a lower wage than for unionized warehouses in Alabama, in that part of Alabama. So I, I, I saw somewhere someone was comparing it to the poultry plants, and it's just, yeah. as we say in Spanish, they're, they're apples and oranges, and those are yeah. the lowest wage sector. But I wanted to just, I want you yes. to continue with this story, but, but I think it's really important, this one issue about the size of the bargaining unit and who determines yeah. it, because you said they were assuming it was 1,500, and yeah. in fact, my understanding is that Amazon publicly said it was 1,500 in the beginning, yeah. but yep. then they responded that there were more than 5,800. And I read somewhere else under existing law because of some decision in 2017 during the Trump administration that the company had standing to determine the size and scope of the bargaining unit, not 
those who were trying to unionize. And maybe you could just a little more detail on that number. Yeah. Well, so this has gone up and down during the NLRB. During the Obama NLRB, we had a ruling called specialty health care, which allowed for smaller bargaining units where there was a strong community of interest between the workers. Now, that was done away with under the, the Trump NLRB. It was overturned. So, yes, what essentially happened is that Amazon padded the bargaining unit, hired a huge number of additional workers. But an interesting side part of the story, which is actually quite significant, is that Amazon genuinely believed that the organizing campaign would be dead in the water at that point. They thought, when we expand this bargaining unit to 5,800, the RW is not going to have enough authorization cards. It won't even have a third because it thinks this is a 1,500-person bargaining unit. But as I said, in the meantime, the RW had kept on being getting 50 cards, 100 cards a day. So Did they turns- actually have, I read, some, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I yeah. read somewhere that 2,000 cards. They had were over 2,000 cards, yeah. But, yeah. you know, if you look at the, that the NLRB let out now and the news accounts yeah. are saying it was smaller. So I'm, I know that for people that, you know, are just looking at the big picture, they think it's yeah. not important to quibble over these numbers, but I yeah. think it's, it's important. Right. So, I mean, one of the problems that they face, there's many unique problems at trying to organize a big warehouse like this. You know, it's not like organizing an auto plant or a hospital. For one thing, there's a huge turnover, 100% almost per year in these warehouses. And so a lot of the workers who might have signed the cards in December are no longer employed come February and March. And so on the one hand, you can say they got over 2,000 signed authorization cards filed with the NLRB in December, but they got officially under 1,000 votes. I mean, actually, they got over 1,000 votes because, you know, most of the votes that were challenged were challenged by Amazon. And the reason they were challenged is that in all probability, these are votes that are votes for the union. But still, there is a big drop-off there. And partly, obviously, it's you know, something we'll come on to is to do with the devastating impact of Amazon's union campaign, yeah. which really, you know, they threw absolutely everything at the anti-union campaign, including, of course, engaging in actions which, in all probability, the NLRB may find unlawful. So this might not be over by a long way yet. It's still very within the distinct realm of possibility that the NLRB could order a rerun election or even impose a bargaining order on Amazon. So, yes, it filed the 2,000 cards, went for the much bargain bargaining unit because it thought we have momentum here. We have over 2,000 cards. Now, to step back just for a second. But can I just ask quickly while you do this answer? So could they have challenged that larger bargaining unit as defined? Could they have done something about that at that point? There were negotiations over who should be included and who should not be included at the December NLRB hearings that that I attended by Zoom. Other people did too. And I think the RW essentially made a calculated decision. It could haggle over the bargaining unit for weeks and possibly months, or it could agree to Amazon's larger unit and get this election moving. Neither one was necessarily a great choice, 
But it decided that the better choice was not to have months and months and months of delay, which was clearly Amazon's strategy. I mean, Amazon had three goals, the law firm, from the outstart. But the first one was delay, delay, delay. It wanted to put off this election for as long as possible. I mean, it didn't want an election. It wanted to sink the campaign before it got <laughs> to an election. But if there was going to be an election, you wanted to spend months and months and hearings, which easily could have happened. Second thing, it wanted as big a bargaining unit as possible to include all of these new hires who had never spoken to the union, who the union had not had the opportunity to engage with. Clearly, this was in Amazon's interest, not in the union's interest. And third, another issue maybe we'll go on to, is that they wanted an on-site election. They did not want this mail-in ballot. And you look at that issue and you say, well, the union got what it wanted. It got the mail-in ballot. Well, first of all, every ballot has been a mail-in ballot since the NLRB established its six-point test in November for determining the conditions for on-site versus mail-in ballots. So it was ridiculous that Amazon was even trying to push for an on-site ballot. But it pushed for it. It got turned down. It appealed. It got turned down. It asked to put a mailbox on site. The NLRB said no. And then Amazon went ahead and put a mailbox on site in any case. By appealing to apparently the post office to yes. get them to agree. By putting it. pressure on the USPS because Amazon is by far the largest customer of the postal service and has right. tremendous leverage. There's probably not another company in the country that could have gotten the post office to install a mailbox where it wanted, when it wanted. It appeared in the middle of the night, evidently immediately before voting began, and it played a very key role in the election itself. So those were the three things that Amazon wanted. It wanted delay, it wanted a bigger bargaining unit, and it wanted an on-site election. But the RW was faced with not a dilemma, but a choice. Mm. You know, it had been collecting all of these cards, and you have to remember this is the largest union organizing election that's ever been conducted at Amazon. And the reason that people have not gone for NLRB elections is not by and large because they think it's a foregone conclusion that Amazon will win. I mean, they know it's going to be incredibly difficult, but it's because no one has even got to the point of being able to petition for an election at Amazon at such a large facility. So the fact that they had collected 2,000 cards was truly remarkable. As you said, at a facility that had been open only for a matter of months. Yeah. You know, they had been collecting dozens and dozens of cards every day. And so, you know, you have to think, what kind of message would it have sent if they had decided at that point, let's withdraw the petition, let's call this thing off, put it on ice, whatever you want to say. So. A lot of people are asking that question, and I want us to build to it in a way because I think Ooh. that's an important question to ask. But, you know, given that at this point, the NLRB and Amazon decide that it's a 5,800 plus, yeah. 5,876, according to yeah. the NLRB, yeah. that are eligible to vote, then the RW has to decide 
how they're going to organize that many people. And it's mm-hmm. a pandemic. And yes, what, you know, there's been a yeah. lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. It's yeah. not even Monday yeah. yet. And we'll get into it. Jay McAlevey yeah. in The Nation says, you know, well, they should have done house visits because doing visits near the union site was not favorable. And I know mm-hmm. I had Lauren Carey Gurley on here and she was yeah. talking about the way Amazon put pressure on the city so that they changed right. the uh, right. traffic light so that yep. workers showing up there before they went in had yep. no time to talk. And besides yep. that, McAlevey says, well, they had union spies and they were watching every move. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, others have said that because of the spies within the plant that they knew who was going to be in favor of unionizing before the union even knew it. And that's another issue. But I wanted, you know, just on this question, Business Insider reported that 3,215 ballots had been cast. Mm-hmm. NLRB adds up to 3,041. Right. And even their math doesn't work when you do challenged plus void. It's still, according to my bad math, yeah. admittedly, yeah. there's about 175 to yeah. 200 votes missing. Yeah. And do we know anything about that? What does so it mean? Y- I mean, you're right. It's very confusing. I've looked at the figures too. I mean, not like in enormous detail, but obviously when you think like, why are the ballots being challenged? Well, two of the obvious reasons are this person isn't employed at the facility anymore and shouldn't have been allowed to vote. Or this person should not have been included in the bargaining unit because, you know, legally they're defined as part of management. Or this person voted twice. And what are you going to do if you get two ballots from the same person? But you know, talking to people who were at that part of the count, basically the union and the union's lawyers, Amazon's lawyers from Morgan Lewis, there were some, let us say, sort of curious things going on. So we know that the votes arrived at the NLRB We've been told, anyway, that the votes arrived at the NLRB maybe like 10, 15 per day, most days of the election count. But then there were three days, two days in February, one day in March, where a huge bundle of votes arrived. And those ones, the union suspects, all came from Amazon's vote harvesting through the mailbox on site. And so Amazon's challenges to the ballots it has been suggested to me, were based largely on the date of the vote. It was not challenging any votes that arrived at the times when those votes arrived that were suspected of coming from the mailbox that was directly on site. They were challenging other votes at times when the union thought that more of their voters were participating and more likely to have voted at that time. So, the overwhelming majority of challenges were made by Amazon and not by the RW. And so there's reason to believe, as I said before, that a significant majority of the challenge votes are union votes or not company votes. There's not enough votes there to overturn the result right. of the election. But yeah, yeah it well, does. Do the- we ever get a chance to know what are in the challenge votes or is that? completely private? Well, I think we will get more information. I don't know if we'll ever get all of the information we want. I mean, again, some of the votes were being challenged because Amazon was claiming that the signatures were illegible. 
again, according to people I spoke to who were in the room, sometimes they said the signatures were 100% legible. But if they challenge it on that basis, they can challenge it on that basis. Whereas you had signatures on ballots from the period where you had the big dumps of votes that they weren't challenging because, again, the likelihood is that they were far more likely to be company votes. I mean, all of this sounds a little bit technical and, you know, sort of insider. <laughs> but the point is that the vote count itself sort of displays, I think, some of the underhand tactics that Amazon was using. The significance of the mailbox, you know, I want to talk just for a second, but you know, I don't want to zero in on the mailbox and ignore all of the you know, other incredible things. I'm going to ask you more about the other yeah. things in a minute. <laughs> but the thing about the mailbox is, you know, you have to think about what it represented symbolically to the workers in the facility. For one thing, the workers had asked the RW, will Amazon be having a mailbox, a ballot drop site within the facility? And the union said to them, absolutely not. That would be against the law. The NLRB has already said that Amazon cannot do this. And yet... When it happens, of course, the union loses credibility because yeah. said, you told us this was not going to happen. And here is this mailbox. And these are workers, let us remember, that are used to being monitored, are used to being surveilled every second that they are at work. So all of a sudden, they see a mailbox very prominently displayed as soon as they go in, just immediately before they go into the workplace, a marquee is erected around the mailbox, big signs saying you express your voice here. Amazon is texting them and saying, vote no and do it in our mailbox. Make sure you use our mailbox. So, you know, it would be unbelievable not to conclude that at least some of those workers probably would have taken this as a clear sign that Amazon has to be playing some kind of official role in collecting ballots. Who knows? You know, maybe even they thought it, it was even going to play a role in counting ballots that Amazon might know how they would have voted on a secret ballot. So I think it's not just about the number of votes that were mm -hmm. cast that way, although it seems that a significant number were cast using that ballot box that Amazon had gotten installed, but it's also about the message that this has sent to the workforce that Amazon really can do whatever it wants and get away with it, which is essentially what happened. Right. So I want to ask you one more question about that before we move on, and that is that once the union decided or accepted the size right. of the bargaining the, unit yep. at over 5,800, yep. they kind of had like a Sophie's Choice. You said at the outset that Amazon's first tactic was delay, delay, yep. delay. And given the resources of the union – yeah. And also the fact of the pandemic and the decision yeah. not to do the house visits, yeah. Yeah. even had they decided to do the house visits, because we're getting, mm. you know, criticism of them right. for not doing it, just like you did in the vote. Well, can I say, sorry, I don't mean to yeah. interrupt. Yeah, One yeah. thing about the house visits is that Amazon was telling workers the union is going to come and bother you in your house putting you at risk, putting potentially your, wow. your family's health at risk. So you know, because Amazon was telling this, this was an additional reason. I mean, apart from the fact that they were concerned about the health 
issues involved with doing house visits. But it's also not true that house visits did not take place. The union did not do official house visits, but what we had was an enormous and very diverse community canvassing effort related to the union drive. So you have all of these different groups, Black Lives Matter Birmingham, Birmingham DSA, Our Revolution, Socialist Alternative, union members, just lay union members from other unions in the community who went door to door. They went to every single house in Bessemer, just said to people, this is why we're supporting the Amazon union effort. And if you drove around Bessemer in the weeks before the election, you would not have been able to go a single block where you would not see at least one sign saying, we support the Amazon workers, you know, who are trying to form a union. And they didn't even stop at Bessemer. They went to thousands of households in Tuscaloosa and in Birmingham. So this idea that they didn't do house, yes, they made a decision because of what Amazon was saying and because of the realities of the pandemic, that it was probably a good idea not to do house visits. Now, that's something we can argue whether it's the right decision or not, but that's what they decided. But nonetheless, there was this incredible community canvassing effort that went house to house. I'm so glad you're saying this, John Logan, because thinking about the article that we saw in The Nation from Jane McAlevey, which is sort of like, this is what you should have done and this is what you didn't do. And it was like, a this is a primer on how to do it. There's no shortcuts and all the rest of it. But I was thinking, and you've just answered this, because one of the criticisms or let's say one of the successes we've learned about from Chicago teachers, L.A. Mm -hmm. teachers, All of the successful campaigns involve community support. And so that was one of her sort of things that she didn't get the clergy on board. And of course, maybe you can say something about that. But one one thing I was just going to ask you is, had they decided, okay, 5,876 people, how many hundreds of organizers do we need to have right here Mm -hmm. in Bessemer or in Mm -hmm. this general area? To be able to deal with that many workers and at the same time not allow Amazon to have that delay, delay, delay. So I think this was a very difficult situation for the union. But I'm really glad to hear that there was all of this mobilized community political support. So go ahead. Yeah, just to follow up what you're saying about that is I do think that's a very important point because I did not go to Bessemer because I'm an academic and I just sort of sit at home and read books and do some writing and whatever. But I did speak repeatedly to people who were down. I mean, I spoke to Lauren Gurley a dozen times probably when she was in Bessemer and outside the traffic light and she she did fabulous reporting. Yeah. It was incredible. And you know, I spoke to at least a dozen journalists who spent time weeks there. And I've spoken to organizers who were directly involved in the day-to-day running of the campaign. Everyone said, everyone outside of the RW, I'm not saying the RW is saying this about their own campaign. Everyone said to me, 
that a really, really striking feature of this campaign was its openness to outside help, that it brought in all of these different groups from the community. Someone compared it to Occupy Wall Street oh, because, brilliant. you know, it involved all of these sort of young, idealistic people from all over. And, of course, the union has to do a certain amount of vetting, you know, because you never know, like, you know, who you're letting in there and whether or not they really have good intentions and whether or not they really do want to help. Or even if they do want to help, you know, maybe they're a little bit crazy and they're, you know, it's going to backfire. But they said that there was often, I mean, you you know, anyone who follows these labor struggles, you know, often there's a sort of insular, closed suspicion of outsiders amongst these union campaigns that it was just the opposite with this campaign, exactly the opposite, that there was all of these groups that they welcomed in and they sort of said, okay, who are you? Why do you want to help us? What skill set do you have? Great. And so they had people doing the community canvassing. They even had people from outside the RWDSU, dozens and dozens of them, doing phone banking once they were trained, once they had sufficient training that would make them effective on the phones. And so, you know, this idea that they didn't engage with community organizations or they did it too late in the campaign. Sure, maybe you can find one community organization in Birmingham that feels that it wasn't adequately. I mean, I'm not denying, you know, there's always people who feel, well, you know, we should have been part of that campaign. We should have been invited in. But the overwhelming message that I've gotten is that this was an incredibly open, diverse campaign that welcomed and brought in community organizations and tried to give them in a role. And you know, when you consider they're saying through community canvassing, this was not the union. This was these other organizations. They knocked on every door in Bessemer and thousands and thousands of doors in Tuscaloosa and Birmingham. You know, that shows you that this is an effort that involved many outside people, many outside organizations. Well, all right. So this is great. So I want to go through a few more of the criticisms. You said you were going to say something about clergy. But the other thing is, because there was all of this very favorable media, I've never seen anything yeah, like it. Yeah, with incredible. Long incredible. articles in the New York Times business section, very favorable. Yep. This was even President Biden, as we said, you yep. know, in our last interview made that speech against captive audiences that yep. Amazon played every trick in the book to yes. defeat them. Yep. And there's some criticism from the McAlevey article about the celebrities and sports figures and others and all of the labor organizations yep. writing so positively yep. about this. So, one, I find that just off base because it was such an inspirational struggle, even right. if everyone knew from the outset yep. that it was going to be a heavy lift against a company yep. like Amazon. And yep. I'd like to get your opinion on that. And then yep. also just in that, because the, I guess the question to ask is how much of this was kind of led from all of the support on the outside or how much of it was yep. actually the initiative of the workers in sure, the plant? Sure. So to address that directly and also this sort of larger criticism of this supposedly being some kind of top-down campaign rather than worker-driven or committee-driven or, you know, however you want to describe it. The thing about celebrity endorsements, and I, again, you know, I've spoken extensively to people about this issue, it has zero impact on <laughs> what the organizers were doing in the ground. You know, I spoke day after day with people who were organizing in Bessemer with the workers, meeting with the workers. 
they would occasionally hear from the union leadership. You know, Stuart Applebaum, I think, is actually a very effective public face for the union. And I think it was actually very good that he was on the media putting forward the union's case. But he was involved in getting, yeah, these high-level political endorsements or media endorsements. And the organizers would say, sometimes that Stuart would say, well, what do you think? And their attitude would be like, great, whatever. Doesn't affect what we do here, you know. I mean, they were happy, you know, they said it can only help, it's a good thing, that's great, but it has no relevance to what we do on a day to day basis. And so they were focused on bringing in people from the community, engaging with workers all they could through tens of thousands of phone calls, through meetings at the union hall, through small group meetings. But as you said, the reality is the pandemic, which is rarely mentioned by some of these critiques of the RW campaign, was a limit. They wanted to hold large meetings because in campaigns, we know that, you know, organizers know anyway, that large meetings are extremely effective at building solidarity, at building bonds between the workers, you know, across shifts and across different boundaries. But they couldn't do that because of the pandemic. The workers didn't want to meet in groups larger than 10. And when you organize a meeting of 10, you usually end up with five or six or seven. And so that's how most of their meetings took place. But they were involved in engaging with workers. I mean, another thing we mentioned was, you know, this idea that their primary means of engagement was at that traffic signal when the workers were in their cars. That is completely incorrect. I mean, that played a role in the initial card signing campaign because, you know, just once they had reached out to workers, once they had spoken to workers, they would say to them, hey, well, you know, our organizers will be outside the plant. If you want to sign a card, sign the card, you know, as you go in, as you leave. And so it did play a role in collecting cards. And they kept it going because they wanted a visible signal that the organizers were still there and that they weren't going away and that they were going to be there until the end. But to suggest that this was the primary means of engaging with workers is just factually incorrect. It's not what happened during the campaign. And they knew, I mean, the phone banking was very important, but they also knew phone banking was not the best way of organizing. Phone banking was a way to make contact with workers so that you could set up meetings, so you could get people to come to small group meetings, so you could get them to come to the union hall to talk to them there. Meanwhile, in New York or in Washington, you have all of this sort of high-level stuff going on with Andy Levin and Bernie Sanders and Sarah Nelson and Rich Trumka all playing a really important role in getting Biden to make what, as you said, is a truly remarkable video about calling out Amazon's anti-union tactics, something we've never had, again, presidential history. So, And I'll continue with this. But again, I think, you know, we have to step back at some point. And the people who are criticizing it saying you should never have gone ahead if you didn't have X number of cards, if you didn't have X number of committee members. That was going to be my question. Yeah. Are are they really saying they would rather not have had Biden's video? Because that video would not have taken place if not for the Amazon. Would they really not have had, as you said, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of 
overwhelmingly favorable media stories, not just in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, but in Elle, in Teen Vogue, in all sorts of publications. So what the media coverage achieved is that it really exposed, you know, for people who are sort of like old hands at labor campaigns, they dismiss Amazon's anti-union campaign. Well, of course, there was a huge anti-union campaign. What did they expect? But much of the audience that read about this campaign are hearing about these things for the first time. And, you know, the fact that Amazon went to such extraordinary lengths was an incredible opportunity to engage with people about what really happens during a union organizing campaign. But I would actually go further than that. I would say, for the first time in my lifetime, the media coverage has actually created at least an opportunity, has opened up an opportunity to have a serious national debate about the t- terrible consequences of not having adequate labor rights in this country and the desperate and urgent need for stronger labor rights. So if you imagine the debate over the PRO Act, which we might not get, I mean, everyone knows it's still going to be an incredible lift and a long shot. And you know, even if by some miracle the filibuster were suspended, it would still be incredibly difficult. And this is with a president who is 100% behind this. But if you imagine what the debate over the PRO Act would look like without the context of the Amazon campaign, how anemic it would be in comparison with the way that it has been. I mean, Amazon has been exhibit A in why we need the PRO Act. And, yeah. you know, and Walmart would be exhibit A minus or something. Yeah, yeah. But the fact that we've had this campaign that you know involves one of the best-known companies in the world that has been documented in real time by the media day after day after day is just an incredible gift to the labor movement and to people who want progressive labor law reform. Now we have to make the best of that opportunity and not squander it. But, well, I you know, think that's a good place to take it, John Logan, because I don't think – it's really widely known just how hamstrung American workers are by labor law. Yeah. If you compare it to, say, yeah. Amazon plants in France and Germany yeah. are unionized yeah. and there it's already been decided upon by the strength of the labor movement in the 30s and 40s and later in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But still, that doesn't mean that they win a whole lot of better conditions, but it's better than here. Yeah. And one of the things that and one of the things that we know that happens is that after a union drive, that's uh, successful for the company, they often, you know, fire the organizers or do it right through there. And then then it goes to the NLRB. But the way that that's worked is that it can take years and years, you know, yep. for them to determine individual yep. cases, seven, eight, nine, ten yep. years. That's another, you know, this beautiful yep. delay, delay, delay kind yep. of idea. Yep. It's, so it's very difficult to organize. And this brings yep. up the question that I wanted to ask you, not just labor law reform, Mm-hmm. But, you know, what the impact of the defeat will be? Is it an incredible demoralizing blow that will prevent yeah. further organizing? I, I know you can't answer that, you know, specifically, but there's also this notion now that, you know, it's too difficult to do it plant by plant. Maybe they should, you know, be able to do it 
against a company as a whole or right. there's a lot of issues that came out of that and I wondered if you know because the reason I ask it is that a lot of people are asking the other question is knowing what an uphill battle it was and you've semi answered this in your other uh, yeah. responses was maybe they shouldn't have taken it on because a defeat is worse than a victory right. I don't agree right. with that and I don't no. think you do but I'd no. like you to t- talk about what you think the impact is going to be and, and just one other tiny point about it that I read somewhere else that just about how difficult it is on top of all of the anti-union activity, but you know the the conditions for working in Amazon yeah. are so onerous yeah. and so difficult that it's kind of like a hot shop where you have a yeah. tremendous amount of turnover. Yeah. So even though you might have a majority of people in favor, but then that workforce is sure. you know changing constantly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, go ahead. I put so a lot of stuff in more, there. So that final point, and then I'll go back to labor yeah. law and back to the issue of organizing. The final point is, you're right, this was a hot shop strategy. And, you know, sometimes in the labor movement, we look down upon that type of organizing. But the reality is, this was really the antithesis of a top-down organizing campaign. What happened was the workers contacted the union. The union leadership, which to say, I personally you know, have great admiration for, think they do a good job, would not have chosen this particular struggle. I mean, I have no doubts about that whatsoever. But, you know, really, the local people said to them, no, the workers want to do this. We're going ahead with it. And then it took off, and it took off in an incredible way. But to go back to your original point, so as you said, I mean, the question then is, well, do you just say, you know, under current labor law, under current union organizing rules, it's impossible to organize at the likes of Amazon, so we shouldn't do anything. Or it's fair enough to say we should try different strategies. And I, I will come to that point in a minute. Just to agree with you in, on the labor law, I mean, I think really of what it shows, what the Amazon campaign shows in crystal clear detail is, and you know, this is a message that organizers probably don't like because, you know, if you're an organizer, have deepest respect for organizers, you have to get up every morning thinking, yes, we can win this campaign. But the truth is, under the current system in the US, if a corporation like Amazon has a sufficient money, the financial resources, and obviously Amazon has that in spades, I mean, it has almost unlimited financial resources, and It has the stomach for a fight. It's prepared to do whatever is necessary in order to defeat the union. It will prevail in the overwhelming majority of cases. That is just the reality. And it shows why we desperately need the PRO Act. And even beyond that, you know, we need an incredible investment in in organizing and sort of smart organizing strategies. But you know, to follow on from your point, does a defeat make us worse off? I don't think it does. I mean, I do think, and this is, I guess, important in some respects, Amazon would love this struggle, you know, the bigger struggle at Amazon for better working conditions, for humane treatment of workers, for respect and dignity in the workplace. Amazon would love that struggle to be defined as Amazon versus the union in the context of an NLRB election because it knows it can dominate the NLRB process with its absolutely unlimited resources. I mean, it can buy, bully, bribe, mislead, lie, lawyer, 
and potentially cheat its way to victory, as it did in Bessemer. I mean, the NLRB will have to decide on the cheating, but it knows it's always going to be capable of doing that. So we can't allow it to define the struggle that way. We have to define it as Amazon versus its own workers who are struggling for better and more humane working conditions. And sometimes that struggle will take the form of NLRB elections, as it did in Bessemer. And there were reasons why you know, they went down that route in Bessemer, such as we've talked about. And other times it will take other forms. And we've seen this with Amazon drivers, Amazon flex drivers, and with the third-party preferred providers, you know, for companies. So we will see a variety of different forms of resistance to Amazon, to struggle at Amazon for better working conditions. But I would point to at least three or four incredibly positive outcomes of the Bessemer campaign. And the first one, which we've talked about, so I'm not going to talk about it again in detail, but I just say that its, it's importance really cannot be understated. And that is the Biden video. I think that video has to be shown at every opportunity by every union and every <laughs> organizing campaign. Everyone knows the apocryphal story from the 1930s, you know, FDR, the president wants you to join a union. That played an absolutely central role in the CIO's campaign to organize the steel in the auto industries. FDR never said that. He never said anything remotely like it. And yet it was believable that he did. But Biden did say this. You know, Biden did call out Amazon's anti-union tactics. He said, you should never do this. You should always give the workers a free and fair choice. And the truth is that made a difference. It even made a difference to the Bessemer workers. We heard this time and time again from the organizers. The second thing, again, which I won't spend any time on because I've talked about it before, is the incredible media coverage and the opportunity that that has opened up, both in terms about educating a whole generation of new people about the realities of anti-union bullying in the United States, and in terms about having a positive debate, national debate about strengthening labor rights. And I think those are enormous achievements. And the third thing, I think, is the, the centrality of the Black Lives Matter theme you know, to the organizing campaign. You know, that was upfront and central. It was for the workers. It was for the politicians who visited Bessemer. It was to the community, the Birmingham Black Lives Matter and other groups, civil rights groups, including clergy, by the way. I mean, we talked a little bit about clergy. I mean, the thing about the clergy is curious. My understanding standing from the organizers is that they did very much engage and invite local clergy and they were actually tremendously helpful to the campaign. There was an issue over the Reverend Barber now, everyone has great respect for Reverend Barber and the poor people's movement. It was simply felt by the workers, I should say, by the workers, that that was not the right message for this particular campaign. The workers did not identify as poor. And, you know, they didn't think it would be particularly helpful. That Reverend Barber did come to Bessemer right at the end of the campaign and spoke and, as always, was extremely eloquent and, you know, did an amazing job. But that was the only sort of hesitation when it came to engaging with the faith community. But 
as I said, you know, you have all of these inspirational black leaders who come out, you know, from the RW organizer, Michael Foster, Big Mike, who came out of the Pilgrim's Progress poultry plant uh, to to the, uh, the the workers themselves, Jennifer Bates and to Daryl Richardson and to the others who were, again, incredibly effective spokespeople for the RWDSU cause within the plant. So I think if nothing else, you know, would you rather the campaign had not happened and we didn't have those things? You know, we didn't have Biden. We didn't have the media coverage. We didn't have the major or organizing campaign around Black Lives Matter. And we didn't have the largest organizing campaign at Amazon in history. It lost, but they got over 2,000 workers to sign union cards. They got over 1,000 workers to vote for the union after one of the most intensive, aggressive, vicious, you know, whatever terms you want to use, anti-union campaigns in recent history, probably most expensive as well. So I think it will act as an inspiration for Amazon workers organizing elsewhere. I mean, the RW has said that it has been contacted by over a thousand Amazon workers from around the country during the course of the campaign. Organizing at Amazon predated Bessemer. I, I mean, you, you know, we've spoken about this before and you know all about it. You know, you've organizing in Staten Island, you have organizing in Chicago, you have organizing in Minneapolis, you have organizing in Sacramento, you have organizing in Southern California. But that has all received an incredible boost. There's almost no Amazon worker now, I think, in the country that doesn't know that there was a, a campaign to take on Amazon at Bessemer. And they lost this immediate election. But as I said, we don't even know that it's over yet. I don't have any inside knowledge into the workings of the NLRB. But as someone who has followed these things for many years, I would say, as these things go, the evidence of potentially unlawful anti-union activity in this particular case seems very compelling to me. So I would be amazed. And in fact, you know, I mentioned to you before we started that I've been speaking with Bill Gould, who's an emeritus professor of law at Stanford, a former chair of the Clinton NLRB <laughs> and a former chair of the Agricultural Labor Relations Board in California and many other things. You know, I'm not doing Bill Gould justice. He said, he again, with no insight into the current inner workings of the board, Bill Gould said he thinks that the election result will be overturned. And so I think there's reason to believe that this is not over yet. But it's been a remarkable campaign. We all wish the result had been different from what it was. But it's not true that the union was doing this blind. It had a strategy. And in fact, at the actual count, when we knew which votes had been challenged and which ones were going to be counted, the union knew within 30 votes what the final count was going to be. So it knew what was going on. It knew which votes were votes for the union, which votes were votes for the company. There's all sorts of shenanigans going on that, as I say, are potentially unfair labor practices that the board will have to rule upon. But this was a union campaign that was, I think, thorough, 
professional, well-executed up against. You know, one of the articles that we've been talking about, I think, talks about danger signs of defeat yeah. were everywhere. There was one major, major danger sign of defeat from the very beginning, and that was this was Amazon. Yes. We were going up against Amazon, <laughs> one of the most powerful and anti-union companies in the planet. Of course, there was always the possibility that this is how it would end up. But along the way, it's achieved remarkable things. And in fact, had you asked me when the union filed and I first read the story, I mean, I, I sort of knew a little bit beforehand in the Washington Post and when it was November 20th or whenever it was, and you asked me to predict the outcome, I would have said, no chance. They're not yeah. going to win, you know. I admire them for trying. And, you know, I wish them the best of luck. And I would also have said, there's not a chance in hell that you can have one campaign that will attract so much positive media attention that will get the president of the United States to make such an explicitly pro-union statement and that will create such a, a close bond and alliance between the Black Lives Matter movement and the labor movement. That's just brilliant. There's almost nothing left to say except I like to quote something that, you know, Victor Serge said after the defeat, you know, of their wonderful revolution from within. And he said, you know, we shouldn't be too demoralized by our defeats. After all, how many times does a child fall before he mm -hmm. learns to walk? He yeah. does learn to walk. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that while individually for workers who put their all into this, it's demoralizing, I think, for all the reasons that yeah. you've just said, John Logan, that this is a huge boost and it's uh, changed the conversation nationally and it yeah. puts Amazon and other companies on notice that this is the new way yeah. and maybe they're going to have to devote a lot more resources. But we have a battle ahead and we knew that. Yeah. So Absolutely. we've run out of time and I'm so okay. thrilled that I managed to get you for the hour knowing how busy you are, John Logan. But I want to thank you so much for literally opening up the discussion so that we understand this better. And just to tell the listeners, John, isn't Professor and Chair of Labor and Unemployment yes. Studies at SFSU? Uh, it is. San yes, Francisco. Yep, yep, yep. And we look forward to articles that he's going to be writing. One is going to be in Against the Current. I'm sure there's many more. Uh, thanks so much for joining us yep. today. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.